Well, good morning. How's everyone? Good. Awesome. Good to see you guys. If you have a Bible, let's go to Mark chapter 8. If you don't have one with you, there should be a black hardback underneath a seat around you. You're more than welcome to pick up one of those and join us in Mark 8. We are coming back to our sermon series on the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so we have had a few weeks of a break, um, but we are back. If you remember, we stopped at the halfway point uh, for the Gospel of Mark. So we're picking it back up, part two of the Gospel of Mark. Um, in a very important and very interesting passage this morning. Now, I've titled the sermon, The Million Dollar Question. Uh, and I thought we'd start by looking at this short little clip that I found online. Uh, it had been floating around for a while. I think we're all familiar, hopefully, with the TV show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Um, so the premise is you answer questions, trigger questions, they get harder and harder and harder, and you're kind of gambling your money on whether you're going to keep answering these questions. Um, well, the clip we're about to see is a, a man named John Carpenter, um, he was actually the first person uh, to get to this million dollar question uh, in the Who Wants to Be a Millionaire kind of trivia history. Uh, and the backstory, because we can't show all of it, there's like a 20 minute clip. Um, he's gone through all the questions and he's answered them all right away. Um, he's a brilliant man, genius man. I think also he won Jeopardy as well. Um, and so he's just that kind of guy. Um, who wants to be a millionaire really lucked out when they picked him, right? Out of all the people they could have picked in the crowd, they picked the genius who's going to get the million dollars. Um, and he's answered it in kind of a charismatic way, and he's been kind of cocky throughout the whole process. Um, so this is him at the million dollar question, and he has all of his lifelines left. If you remember in the show, you have three lifelines um, to kind of ask for help. He's not asked for help for any questions so far, and this is his million dollar question experience. Question. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. You use that in conversation, the million dollar question. It actually goes back to the 40s in a TV show called Take It or Leave It, uh, which was then renamed in the 50s to the $64,000 question. Um, I just guessed the age of most of you uh, <laughs> by who, who nodded to that and who did it. Uh, and then now with uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, we get the million dollar question. Um, so we do that, and I've named the sermon million dollar question because um, what we'll see is today Jesus will pose to his disciple. Um, disciples, and then to us, what I think is the million-dollar question, um, and, and why this is such an important passage in Mark. And, and just like John was confident in his answer, um, I'm hoping that you and I can be confident in our answers, that we might be able to boldly answer this, this question that Jesus will pose to disciples and then to us. So we're in Mark 8. We're going to pick it up in verse 27. Let me catch you up, though, because we have been out of the book of Mark for a while. Mark begins. Jesus shows up on the scene. Um, he's baptized by John the Baptist, who has been proclaiming this ministry, preparing people for God to come back into the world. Um, and then John the Baptist is arrested, and Jesus takes over. And right away off the bat, Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, um, and the kingdom of God is here. God is coming to set back up his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. And then for the next few chapters, as we've seen, Jesus has gone out, and he has done kingdom ministry. So he has preached and he's taught, mainly in parables. And then he's done kingdom actions. He has cast out demons. He has healed people. He has calmed the storms. He has, in all of these actions, demonstrated the kingdom. The fact that God's rule was now coming back to earth. And where evil was in earth, in an exorcism with a, a demon possessing a little girl, or in a sickness with a man who was paralyzed, Jesus cast it out. He says, this is not God's plan. This does not belong in God's kingdom. And so he goes through these kingdom ministries. 
Now, we've gotten to the very middle of the Gospel of Mark, and this is going to be kind of the turning point of the Gospel of Mark. So let's read together. I'm in Mark 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, this is a very important passage for a couple of reasons. Um, the first reason is it's actually literally the center of Mark's gospel. Um, this is the turning point story of Mark's gospel. This is the literary heart of Mark's gospel. Um, he has carefully placed this here um, to illustrate that this is the big deal. This is the story we need to understand. Um, from here on in the book of Mark, um, we're leading and walking towards the cross. We've had kingdom activity now we've got this confession, and then we're going to start walking towards the cross. Um, it's also an important narrative for Jesus and his disciples, so historically. Um, so if you've noticed here, Jesus goes with his disciples to Caesarea Philippi. Um, so the sermon this morning is going to be really simple. We're going to notice a few things about the text and talk about it, and then talk for a few minutes about how the text might apply to us. Um, I think this is kind of the natural way you and I should study the Bible, right? We read... Um, we learn things about the text, and then we meditate and wonder, how does that apply to us in our lives? Um, so I want you to notice here that they're in Caesarea Philippi. It's um, an interesting and important because they're coming from Bethsaida, um, from the earlier passage. Now, um, if you can bring up the geography of Jerusalem in your mind, um, Bethsaida is right at the north of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus does most of his ministry around the towns of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Caesarea Philippi is way up north. It would have been a long and out-of-the-way travel for Jesus and his disciples. Um, by modern times, so if you were to go to Jerusalem right now and travel from Bethsaida to Caesarea Philippi in a car on modern roads, it could take you up to two days. So imagine a group of men walking this distance. Um, Jesus is going out of his way to have this conversation in this place. And, and that's important. Sometimes... When we say things, the place we say them in has a symbolic significance to it. And Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi because the conversation they're going to have will be um, kind of emphasized by the location that they're in. Um, um, Caesarea Philippi is a, uh, a first century town. There's a lot of villages there. Um, one of the most prominent villages was built on the base of the spring that had come down and created this little cave, okay? And the cave for years had been known as a place of worship for pagan gods. Even today, if you go there, you'll find this big cave um, behind the spring, and, and you'll find little notches have been carved out in the cave, and then pagan um, statues and shrines have been placed there to, to worship. Um, and so um, the Canaanites, when they were in charge of this land, would come to this town, this village, this uh, spring, and they would worship the god Baal. That was their primary god. And then when the Greeks took over, they changed it from Baal worship to Pan worship. That was their primary God that they worshipped here. Um, and then just recently, before Jesus' and disciples come to the city, the Romans had taken over. And they renamed the city Caesarea after Caesar, the emperor, the king of all kings. And they built this prominent temple to the newest pagan god who happened to be the Roman emperor, Caesar himself. 
He called himself the Son of God, the King of Kings. He was the King of all the countries in the world. They had their kings, but he was the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Son of God. And he considered himself deity, and they worshipped him, the Romans did. And so Jesus goes to this location, so prominently known for its worship and political significance, in order to have this conversation. This conversation, which will include, as we'll get to, this statement that Jesus is the Christ. Basically, that Jesus is the king. Um, it would be akin to if I were to march up to the White House in Washington, D.C. Um, with a group of people, some following, um, and I were to get up and stand right in front of the White House with the perfect scenery behind me and say, I'm the real president. Right? It, it me, it's silly either way, but it means a little bit more than it would if I just did it on the streets in Sugar Land. Right? There's kind of this subversive nature to it. You can imagine Jesus and the disciples standing there with this in the background as they're having this conversation. So the conversation has two parts to it. There's two questions, okay? He asks the disciples first, who are the people saying that I am? What's the rumor on the street? What are people saying when they're talking about me? Perhaps he is asking whether the disciples have been paying attention. I mean, it's kind of interesting that he even cares about the crowd's opinions, right? He asks the disciples. Um, perhaps he's wondering if they've been influenced by the crowds. Um, they spend more time with them. Um, maybe he's wondering about their kind of inside take on how successful his ministry has been, if the crowds are understanding it or not. Um, and the answers they give are all these great and important prophets in Israel's tradition. So the first one is John the Baptist. Um, now, John the Baptist has already died. Um, but as we've seen, Herod, King Herod, has already been afraid that John the Baptist is resurrected um, and is back doing his ministry again. And so while that might seem odd for us, for people to say, that's John the Baptist resurrected, this was a, a, a kind of legitimate belief in the first century. Um, and Jesus' ministry was so similar to John the Baptist's ministry, right, that, that someone wondered, maybe this is John the Baptist who has come back, preaching the kingdom. Um, others said Elijah, um, this great and monumental prophet in the Old Testament, the history of Israel. If you'll remember, Elijah never dies. He's one of the men in the Old Testament, two of them, who never dies. And there was a prophecy at the end of Malachi um, that said Elijah would actually come back before God's kingdom arrived. Uh, and so many Jews in the first century actually expected Elijah himself to show up uh, and get things ready for um, the kingdom to come. Um, we've seen Jesus associate John the Baptist with Elijah. He said John the Baptist fills that role of one like Elijah has come to prepare the way. And then others have said, like other great prophets in the history of Israel, Matthew's version of this story, he includes Jeremiah. Um, so the crowds are in general saying Jesus is one of these great prophets. Now this is interesting because at one and the same time, the crowds are surprisingly close to the truth, yet profoundly wrong about the identity of Jesus. They're close to the truth because Jesus is a prophet. He does self-identify as a prophet. He stands very intentionally in the long line of great prophets in Israel's history who calls out evil and injustice and calls God's people back to repentance and gives hope um, to God's people who are puzzled and confused and scared. Um, this, I think, actually is a good correction to those of us who think of Jesus and can only imagine him as this gentle and meek and mild man. Um, because these prophets in Israel's history, right, John the Baptist had his head on a platter. Um, these prophets were fearless men who called out the powers that were, um, who, who weren't afraid to call sin, sin, and call back God's people. 
Um, and for Jesus to be associated with these prophets meant he was making quite a splash. Um, he had made his fair share of enemies. He was um, making this important um, campaign in the kingdom of Israel. Now they're wrong and, and profoundly wrong about his identity because all of these prophets, John the Baptist and Elijah and, and these other prophets, are all preparing the way for the king and the kingdom to come. So John the Baptist says, I'm here, but one's coming who's greater than me. There's going to be the king. I'm preparing the way here. And, and so what they get wrong here is the chronology. Um, they're attributing to Jesus that he is getting things ready for the king to come and for the kingdom to show up. They're missing out on the fact that he actually himself is the king. He is bringing the kingdom. He is the actual show itself. Do you see the difference between the two? So the crowds are, are close, but ultimately wrong. The second part of the conversation, Jesus moves it, makes it a little more personal. He asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers. Peter's kind of the leader of the group, known for being bold. He doesn't seem to hesitate here. And he says, you are the Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not Jesus E. Christ, okay? We so often put the two together. Christ is a royal term. It's a Greek word for the Jewish term Messiah. Um, the Messiah was the long-awaited king that the Jewish people hoped for. In the Jewish world, um, they lived in this story. And the story was that God had created this beautiful world um, with no sin and no pain and no death and no abuse and no poverty and no sickness, but that this beautiful world had been corrupted and enslaved by sin and death and evil. But they had this promise that one day God would send them a king like David, but even better than David. And he would come in and set up God's kingdom on earth. He would get rid of all the sickness. He would get rid of all the death. He would get rid of the abuse and the poverty. He would bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. And for Peter to say to Jesus, you are the Christ, he is making this very political and theological statement. You are the one. You are the king. You are the one who has come in to be king of kings. You are the one who will stand over and above even Caesar himself and rule over the earth and make the kingdom of God appear here as it is in heaven. It's interesting that Peter comes with this title because so far in Mark's gospel, the only title we've heard the disciples call Jesus is teacher. That's the only thing out of their mouths we've seen towards Jesus as teacher. And, and it's quite a jump here that Peter's able to recognize him as the Christ. In fact, we haven't seen the word Christ or Messiah in the Gospel of Mark. This is the first time it appears. Another reason why this passage serves as such an important turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Um, we've seen other people give exalted titles to Jesus. So um, demons have called him the Holy One, the Son of God. Um, people who have been healed have called him Lord and the Son of God. Um, but here we get this title, Christ. Um, Jesus seems to accept the title, um, but he strictly charges them to tell nobody. Now, again, remind yourself where we are when Jesus is having this conversation. We're in Caesarea Philippi, surrounded by this prominent temple to Caesar, the supposed king of the kings. And Jesus asks, who am I? And Peter says, you are the king. You are the one. You are the true Lord of lords. This is at one and the same time both a political statement and a theological statement. It's political because it's dangerous to say things like that. Um, doing that kind of thing gets you killed, right, by the kings. 
and you start to claim to subversively be actually the one in charge. And in front of the White House, in front of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus accepts this answer as, I am the Christ. It's a theological statement, right? Jesus is saying, all these promises you've had in the Old Testament, the history of Israel is all coming in a climax right here. I am the king. This is the kingdom being inaugurated, being set up one day to be consummated and finished. So Jesus accepts the title, um, and then he tells them, don't tell anybody. Quiet about this. Don't use this word again. Um, and this is what we call the messianic secret. We've already seen this in Mark. Um, when Jesus heals certain people, he tells them, don't go tell anybody about what happened. When he casts out demons, he tells people, don't go tell anybody about what happened. Um, here, for this Christ proclamation, um, the most likely reason Jesus says, don't tell anyone about him, is because most people, most first century Jews, believe the Messiah was going to be a military warrior who would come in and kick some Roman tail, who would lead the forces, who would lead the troops, who would, who would start shedding some blood, right? Um, now, this is dangerous. If word gets out that Jesus is claiming to be the Christ, it won't be long until he's on a cross. That's what you do for revolutionaries. Um, Jesus will eventually accept that fate, um, but he seems to um, want to buy some time here, right? Also, Jesus is going to radically redefine the concept of Messiahship. We'll see this next week. Um, he's going to say, I am the Messiah, but it's not that kind of Messiah. Um, you've, you've misunderstood what, what you should be expecting in the Messiah. Um, so he strictly charges them uh, to tell nobody. So the million-dollar question to the disciples, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter answers confidently and gets it right. And he says, you are the Christ. You are the King. You are the Lord of lords. And so let's apply this to our lives. How might, how might we um, think about this text and allow it to speak into our lives? I think the text forces on us the same question that Jesus asked the disciples. Who do the crowd say that I am? What, what are people talking? How, what are they saying about me? What are on the blogs? What are on the, the internets? Internets. I'm so old. <laughs> I can't recover from that. That's, we'll edit that out of the podcast. What are, what are people saying on the streets when you're in your classrooms, when you're hanging out with your friends? Who, who are people saying that I am? And then, maybe more importantly, who, who do you say that I am? Who do you think that I am? Who do you believe and affirm that I am? There's lots of opinions out there. If you were to go out into the crowd, right, out into the world and ask people, who is Jesus? Um, you'd hear all kinds of things. A lot of people would say that Jesus is just this inspirational, historical figure. Kind of like Martin Luther King Jr. Um, or Gandhi, right? He kind of inspires us to be a better person. He's a good example. Um, some would say Jesus is this kind of phenomenal moral teacher. Um, he's ethically years, slight years ahead of his time. He has come to show humanity a better way to live. Unfortunately, people haven't listened to him. Some would say Jesus is this character that was created in the first or second century. He was not even a human person. Um, it's this myth that's come about, and people have never seemed to get over since then. Um, some would say Jesus was just this crazy first century Jew who died on a cross. You'll remember, Jesus is not the only first century Jew who claims to be the Messiah, the Christ. All of them die on a cross. And all of them are forgotten and go down in history as crazy, weird Jews, except for one who was resurrected. And some people look at Jesus and go, he was just like the rest of us. He had these weird Jewish beliefs don't really apply to our lives. No one thinks that way anymore. Um, and he got him in trouble, and he was crucified, just like everybody else. 
Um, so you, you look, what are the opinions in the crowd? What, what are the opinions among the disciples? So, so if you were to ask church people, Christians, who do, um, who is Jesus for you? Um, what I found is, is you'll get one or two answers um, most of the time. You will get an answer that has to do with the afterlife um, very frequently. So Jesus is my forgiver. He's the one who's forgiven me of my sins. Jesus is the one who has the ticket to the afterlife for me. Jesus is the one who will grant me immortality after I've died. Um, Jesus, to be more crassly, is my get-out-of-hell-free card, right? He's my fire insurance for the afterlife. Or you'll find um, something to this extent. Jesus is my comforter. Jesus is my friend and my brother. Jesus is my confidant. Jesus is my security. Jesus is my refuge. Um, when things are going tough, I can rely on him. I can find comfort in him. I can find peace in him. Um, now, to those answers um, in the church, um, I would say they're, they're true. And so don't mishear me on, on this at all. Those are, those are all true. Jesus is the one who forgives us of our sins and assures us of our eternal afterlife. Jesus is the one who's a comforter to us, who's refuge for us in times of trouble and confusion. But I wonder if one of the things that's holding back modern Christianity is that we tend to emphasize the personal and emotional connection that we have with Jesus over and against the global and cosmic implications of Jesus' authority as king. Um, so when I grew up, the phrase I heard to become a Christian was, um, the question was, do you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Uh, and uh, I was baptized by Dr. Phil Leinberger over at Sugarland Baptist. He passed away last week. Um, and when I was in the water, he asked me, do you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior? Um, as I've grown up, I'm, I've come to the conclusion, I think... A lot of Christians, intentionally or unintentionally, have grabbed onto the Savior part, but not grabbed on as hard to the Lord part, to the fact that Jesus is king. Kings have authority. Kings must be obeyed. Kings must be submitted to. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons we like the Savior part more than the Lord part. One, um, to acknowledge Jesus as Lord over our lives and over the world would force us into discipleship, would force us into obedience. It's easy to love the fact that Jesus has forgiven us and then keep going out and doing what we do and keep sinning and keep enjoying Jesus' forgiveness for us. But to say, no, he's actually our king, he's actually our president, he's actually our authority figure would require some submission from us, some repentance. It would require us to act differently, to give him our obedience. It would also force us to live on mission. It would also force us to acknowledge that he's the king and he started a kingdom and you and I are called to give up whatever purposes we might have had for our lives and instead join Jesus on his mission to go and preach and act the kingdom in the world around us as we wait for it to be fully consummated. I'll give you an example of this. Um, there was a poll about a year ago, I think, and the poll was on Christians and death penalties. They polled Christians about the death penalty. This is not a political thing. I don't care what you think about the death penalty. Um, I just want to share with you the statistics here. Um, they pulled it. There are a couple interesting things about the findings. Um, one was that the older generation of Christians were much more likely to support the death penalty than the younger generation of Christians. I think most people could have guessed that right. 
the younger generation seems to have moved away on the social issues from their older generation on things like the death penalty. But averaged together, the Christians that polled, um, and this was an, a national Gallup, good, good approved poll, um, 30 to 40 percent of all Christians checked a box or said on the telephone that I support the death penalty. And it was pretty specific, if I remember. It was like four extreme cases of proven guiltiness, uh, murder, mass murder, that kind of thing. 30 to 40% said, uh, I support the death penalty. Now, here's where it gets interesting. On the same poll, they also asked, what do you think Jesus thinks about the death penalty? And here was the statistic. Less than 5% thought that Jesus supported the death penalty. Now, walk with me down this road. This means that 35% of people who took this poll checked a box that said, I support the death penalty, and also checked a box that said, Jesus doesn't support the death penalty. And I can only hope that the irony was not lost on them. Right? I mean, regardless of your opinion on the death penalty, right? I, I think this is a sign, right? Jesus has become just an idea to them. He's not a person who rules. To be a Christian, to say you are the Christ, if anything, means if Jesus says something, we need to believe it. And if we're convicted that Jesus is against this or against this, we've got to be against that or against this. If Jesus tells us to do this, we've got to do that. We don't get to make up our own rules. We don't get to make up our own lives. I'll give you another story. Um, one of my favorite authors, Stanley Hauerwas, tells a story about waiting in a, a waiting room at a, a doctor's office with a friend. And the, they waited for hours and hours and were told different things by different staff members. And the customer service was just horrible. And finally, a nurse comes out to take Hauerwas' friend back. And, and she apologizes profusely. I'm so sorry. Um, you know, there's no excuse for this, but it's been a really crazy day. I'm so sorry for your wait. Uh, and the man says, it's okay, I forgive you. It's fine. Everything's fine. I forgive everybody. And Hauerwas kind of elbows him, pokes fun, tells the nurse, don't take that too seriously. He has to forgive you. His Lord tells him to. <laughs> and it's just a different kind of mindset, right? I mean, normally we think of, we'd like to be forgiving people. Um, instead of thinking, no, we've been told to forgive. There's, there's not an option. Um, when someone asks for uh, forgiveness, we give them forgiveness. And it's less of our virtue and more of uh, obedience to a command, right? Um, Hauerwas was pointing out here, right, this idea of Jesus' command. Um, he's in control. This person, while he might have been a nice person and wanted to forgive them, um, at the end of the day, he was also someone who followed Jesus. And Jesus says forgive. And forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. And when you run out of time to forgive, forgive, and forgive again. I mean, over and over and over and over again. Um, he says, don't be surprised by that answer. That doesn't really mean very much. He has to do that. He has to forgive. His Lord has commanded him to do it. How scary is it to think that perhaps we have turned Jesus into more of a comforting idea than a living person who's ruling and who demands our obedience? Because that's what it means to call Jesus the Christ or the Messiah. To say, you are the king and I will submit my life to you. I will take my orders from you. And so the million-dollar question for us is, do we believe, do we affirm, do we say, what's our answer to the question? Do, you, do we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, is the King? Not any of the above answers, 
not that he's forgiven us, not that he comforts us, but do we believe that he's actually the king of kings, the Lord who rules over the universe, the one who we have to submit to and obey. And, and not just submit to and obey white-knuckled because we have to like a harsh classroom teacher, but, but because in obeying we find life and peace and joy. We find the true life that God has for us. Do we believe that? I think that's a question worth asking yourselves. In my experience, people who would normally right away say, yes, I believe it, sometimes after thinking about it for 34 minutes, might come to the conclusion, I don't think I believe that. And I want to give you space to be able to say no. I mean, you're in church, so there's just some connection you have, right, with Jesus. Maybe you just come for the good-looking, humorous pastor, um, but, but the, you're here. Do you, do you believe that? It's maybe not. Um, but I think it's worth thinking about and, and knowing. I might ask again, when do you believe that? When do you affirm that? When do you say that? Is it just at church? Is it just when bad boy pastor Reverend Professor Skinner gets up and, and, and preaches that you go, okay, yeah, Jesus is the, the Messiah? Or is it in the morning? Is it in the evening? Is it in, um, in your families? Is it in your neighborhoods? Um, I think one important reason for church to come together often is, is to remind ourselves. We're reminded that Jesus is the Messiah. But we've got to find ways to implement that belief into the rest of our lives, into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, so that we're believing this at all times. And then we might say, not only do you believe it, when do you believe it, but more importantly, how do you believe it? How do you say it? How do you affirm a belief that Jesus is the Messiah? Does your lifestyle reflect an affirmation that Jesus is your king, that he is the king? Does your money reflect a belief that Jesus is the Messiah? Does the way that you spend your time reflect a belief that Jesus is the Messiah? Do the words that you use when you speak to others Reflect that you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Do your priorities reflect that you believe Jesus is the Messiah? Does the way you spend your time reflect that you believe Jesus is the Messiah? I think that the Christian life is this continual process towards believing more and more and more at more and more times. Um, and so we might say perhaps there are times in our lives where um, we don't act like we believe Jesus is the Messiah. Right, um, so my puppy poops on my carpet, and, and this thought comes out of my mind, right? And now it's aggression, right? Or, or you're in the grocery line, or you're at work with this evil coworker um, who, who you know Jesus says to forgive, but Jesus didn't even know about this person was coming. She burns cats with her eyes, right? I mean, she's just this evil person. Or you're at your family, and the marriage is falling apart, or with kids who are out of control. And the Christian life is learning to more and more and more, more times and more times, be able to act and believe that Jesus is the King. And to, to give yourself some forgiveness when there are times in your life where, where your actions don't, don't line up with that. To say, I'm not perfect. There's this area in my life where, where this doesn't really reflect an affirmation that I believe Jesus is the Messiah. But I'm going towards that. If you compare this story with the story before at Jesus healing the blind man at Bethsaida, you'll see both stories have a two-stage process. So Jesus heals the man, 
and he can see, but he can't see perfectly. He says, I see men, but they look like trees. And so then Jesus touches him again, and he can see. And then here, he asks, who did the crowds say? And then, who do you say? I think there's an interesting pattern here of progress, of growth. That it's not a maybe one-time thing, but it's a lifetime of learning what it means to believe and to say that Jesus is the Messiah. We're all growing. We're all on a path closer or farther away from Jesus. Um, and so as we come to the table this morning, I, I ask that you would come um, and um, use this time as you, you take the bread and as you dip it in the, the juice and as you remember what the Lord has done for us um, as a way of affirming and reaffirming your belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, perhaps you, you don't believe that or never have believed that and, and, and would like to start that today, right? I, I once had a conversation with someone who, who said, the one problem I have with your church is you don't have an altar call every Sunday. There's no, do you want to come up and believe? And I said, we, I, I call people to the altar every Sunday. We have a literal altar that I actually call them to. Um, this is your chance to come up and to believe and to say and affirm Jesus is the Messiah. Even if you, you're not there perfectly, none of us are there perfectly, even if this is just your very first step, um, you're invited to come to the table and, and, and answer and and hopefully as we continue to grow together as a church community and as individuals, we'll be more and more confident and bold in our affirmations um, like John Carpenter was in, in Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Um, so as you come, um, come affirming that Jesus is the Messiah. You're a Messiah and the Messiah of the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for all the grace that you have given us. We thank you for forgiveness of our sins that we have found in Christ. We thank you for the comfort that we find through your spirit. Um, we thank you that you truly meet all of our needs. We um, thank you that, that at the same time you also are a global and cosmic Christ who rules over the world, who calls us to repent and believe and obey. I pray that you would enlighten us into ways, areas of our lives perhaps, where uh, our, our walk doesn't 